Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema, and we are a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and related marketing service companies. Even if you're not at the point of being able to hire a company like ours, I still want to do my best to help out. And today we are giving away access to our most recent recorded video training titled Relationship Driven New Business at Scale, emphasis on at scale. This is all about how we secure five to 20 weekly brand agency relationships for each one of our clients using tasteful email outreach centered on personal and or business commonalities. A few things we cover. We cover the two big shifts that have created a huge need for this approach and why we think you should rethink uh, the way your agency builds relationships and does new business. We cover the specifics on dozens of commonalities that we have used successfully to build relationships between agencies and brand side decision makers. We cover a simple follow-up process that you can use for your team, if even if you're busy, even if you're in a mixed role between sales and client service. And we cover actual copy examples that you can use to get inspired and build your own campaigns. So if you'd like to get access to the video training, which runs about 30 minutes or so, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash relationships. Again, saleschema.com slash relationships, plural. So today on the podcast, we have Babar Khan-Javed. So Babar is an industry analyst for Profit, which is a business-focused English-language international weekly magazine and is affiliate of the Wall Street Journal. So this was a really interesting interview because we got to talk about the, the media and advertising landscape uh, and the other side of the world, basically, in South Asia. Um, and we, we covered a whole lot, including just uh, Babar's background, um, covering you know these issues in the press, including all the things that we're dealing with in the U.S., but playing out slightly differently uh, in a very, very fast-growing emerging market. So um, that means all the big tech companies and kind of their involvement in that side of the world. So I found that there was a lot of intrigue with this interview. I certainly learned a lot about um, something I didn't know much about beforehand. Uh, and I think this is going to be really interesting, um, regardless of whether or not you want to you know, necessarily bring your agency into that part of the world. So without further ado, please give it up for Babar Khan Javed. Babar, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, so we we were just getting into it a little bit. So I was like, let me throw on the recorder so you don't have to repeat yourself a hundred times. So I think a good question to start things out with is, you know, how would you describe the the advertising and media landscape in Pakistan right now? Sure, uh, it's a fast growing uh, industry. Uh, that being said, it's quite small. Uh, what what Salesforce spends in a year, uh, so Salesforce the company spends more in its own B two B advertising in a year than the entire Pakistan spends. Uh, yeah, as, as well. So it's about $2 billion media spending across uh, above the line and below the line. About 15% of that is digital. So that's about $300 million uh, of which uh, it is pretty much evenly split between Google and Facebook. And so we're still a very much ATL oriented market. We still have a, a large audience base that is uh, TV driven. Um, we have 200 million people in, in the country of which only 80 million have access to a smart device and, and, even within those smart devices, not all of them have access to something you know, like a YouTube or Netflix and all those other things. So primarily the, the TV, uh, the media consumption happens on television, print and radio. Uh, and this also has a big, big part to play with literacy. So if your literacy rate is low, uh, but everyone speaks a certain language, then they'll always they'll consume it from an audio and a visual perspective. 
than they would from a reading perspective because there's sort of there's an educational barrier to uh, accessing a smart device uh, and then from, from there building an account and, and putting in your information. So if you don't know how to read and write, um, then you're more, you're you're, una you're unable to make an, an account on any of these uh, apps, right? But uh, if you're just able to understand by listening or by hearing someone speak uh, on on TV, then that 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 uh, content absorption is much uh, much more seamless. And so that's where the market is right now. And then we have uh, a few advertisers in the FMCG and the telco space that are on the client side. And then with the media agency side, there's hardly 50 media agencies in the whole country, uh, of which two control the almost 50% of the market. And those are Group M, the WPP media investment company. And the second one is called Starcom, which is under the publicist group. Uh, Starcom exists in the market through a, an affiliate uh, deal with a company called Z2C. And so it's it's in a way it's it's a very fast growing market, but it's in the hands of a few vested interests. Uh, and but that being said, a lot of Chinese apps are coming into the country and taking away a lot of the eyeballs towards their own apps. And so there's a huge shift taking place uh, from from the media spend perspective and from the eyeballs perspective. And a lot of the rating agencies are uh, are pointing that uh, pointing that out to advertisers as well and media agencies as well that according to our latest audience measurement data. TV viewership is dipping and apps viewership is is skyrocketing. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, the apps in question are are TikTok. Uh, well, the three Chinese apps. One is one is the most famous one called TikTok. The second one is called Likey, and the third one is called Bigo. So these and, and one more is called Snack Video. Uh, these are the four apps that are just eating the you know the, the you, you know like an FMCG space. They use the word share of throat. Uh, the eyeball share, share uh, mind share uh, from the masses, what we call SEC CDE, uh, are just gravitating at, in, at exponential rates towards these apps, uh, and that's where the where the opportunity lies right now. In in in, I would say, figuring out which of those apps where they where where they play a role in the uh, buyer decision journey or in the in the funnel. Of, of the uh, of the buyer from awareness all the way down to conversion. And more and more, we're seeing that these apps created by these Chinese companies are playing a massive role at the bottom of the funnel. And so a lot of advertisers are looking at them while they're very skeptical in the beginning. They're like, I don't want, I don't know if I want to spend my money on TikTok. They're also seeing that TikTok has created an in-app monetization model so that the creator, the influencer within the app is compensated for actually driving commercial results uh, both by the platform and by the advertiser as well. And so people are looking at this and saying that this is like getting a home channel, home shopping channel, but within your own, uh, in, within the palm of your hand. And so transactions are much more instantaneous. So uh, that's the that's the most crux version of, of it. I don't know if you want to hear about TV, uh, print or radio, but on the digital side, that's where the opportunity is right now to focus yeah. on the influence in the MTN space. Yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of places we could go, and that's that's super interesting. Um, I guess just to give a little more a little more context, I'd love to hear how things have changed. I'm not sure how old you are, but what you know, what how do you remember the the advertising and media and just kind of broadcast space from growing up versus what it's like now and in Pakistan? I, well, I, I can't I can't speak that much about growing up because I, I primarily grew up in the in the uh, in the Middle East and primarily in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and UAE. I did my university education from Pakistan, mm -hmm. and what I've seen over the years is that the TV uh, the the broadcasters basically controlled a solid amount of the market, and they still do, in the sense that they in in, in the West right in the West right now, if my 
if I have a show that's airing on NBC, it's very unlikely that NBC, the distributor of that show, is also owning the production company of the same show. But we don't have those laws in Pakistan. We don't have a single regulator in the country that concerns with the broadcaster associations or that concerns with uh, uh, the advertising industry. We have we have some. I mean, when you if you speak to the other people in the industry, they'll say that we have a regulator for the, for the broadcasters and the agencies. But I'm, I'm talking about in terms of actions, having that 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 regulator be present and having them actually enforce some rules. There's a gigantic difference between the two. So in a way, when there's no regulator, you can go all out and capture the entire market and do all kinds of uh, underhanded underhanded things to uh, capitalize yourself. And so what we've seen, uh, what I've seen over, over the course of the last, last decade has been that broadcasters uh, in, have gone from understanding that they have lost the control of the audience. They've lost the ability to manipulate ratings. In the past, there was three broadcast companies, uh, primarily on TV, print, radio, that were able to uh, pay off. Uh, it's, it's no secret that Pakistan has a pretty bad uh, corruption index score and a pretty bad uh, ease of doing business score. And over the, I would say a decade ago, these uh, three broadcast organizations were able to pay off uh, replicas of Nielsen and replicas of Kantar and tell them that, you know, you, you, you need to give us the highest possible ratings in the top three category in terms of audience consumption. But now it's with digital, with Google Analytics, with Facebook Analytics and all these other sort of free to use analytical tools that show you audience growth and all that, the, the, the advertiser is being pressured to uh, to to, re, to 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 come to terms with the idea, the possibility that the data that they're getting on TV uh, TV consumption uh, is not it does not re reflect the reality. And on top of that, the top rating agency in Pakistan that that covers the measurement of TV audience consumption uh, has a sample size of two thousand households, and it's a two hundred million uh, people country. That's not even one percent. So where you on the one hand you have tools such as Google and Facebook, I'm giving those as the prime examples, but obviously we have many others that show you that, hey, I've got a daily active user rate of 30 million people. I'm going to show you data on all 30 million of them, as opposed to showing you data on 10,000 of them who hopefully represent the rest of the sample uh, or, or, or a sample representative of the entire group. So because of these kind of open, open and transparent data analytics tools, People are starting to realize that this old way we've been doing things, that's not really necessary anymore, or that's not really relevant anymore. We should we should expect our TV, our, our ATL mediums uh, to apply the same measurement as we're seeing on the digital side. Um, and that's where the industry is moving right now. If I speak to any marketer, I speak with advertisers on a daily basis, and more and more the focus has been has been that we'd like to stop spending money on TV, print, radio. And the only reason we're doing it is because media agencies that we deal with have a very strong rebate relationship with those with those uh, media inv inventory types. Otherwise, even the media agencies say, "I would love to sp stop spending money on these these archaic, you know, one-way communications mediums," uh, and and di divert it somewhere else. It's just that because of the way our business model is made up, we have to give them some business so they can give us some kickbacks and some rebates. At the back end of that, because the client is not paying a retainer, the client is not willing to pay for efficiency or precision of the targeting and the messaging and all that. So as, as a result of the client cutting our, our, our you know, when, when we send out an invoice saying or we send out a proposal saying we'd like to charge you $5,000 a month or whatever the, the fee is, uh, and we'll take 15% and we'll, we'll take extra money for spending it efficiently, 
when the client is saying, I don't want any of these things, then the media agency has no choice but to go into the rebate and commission model uh, with the media with the media inventory. And so broadcasters yeah. are paying the, the, the good amounts. That being said, with all these analytics tools that I just mentioned, Google Analytics and Facebook is the, is the most prevalent in Pakistan. Where the market is going is people are starting to see, people have seen a relationship between spending their money for the first time, quantifiable relationship between putting their money into a medium and getting a sales result out of that. Now, that being said, when COVID happened, uh, I mean, to, to the whole world last year, and all the stores and all that had to shut down, uh, the arrogant uh, retail businesses in Pakistan that used to say that retail is everything and e-commerce is nothing, they switched gears, obviously, because e-commerce was the only source of revenue, whereas retail was shut down and no one could visibly, physically visit the stores. They are, they are cognizant of the fact that while spending money on digital media has brought back sales, they recognize the difference between sales that is discounted versus full price. So the hype train isn't all there. I mean, the hype train yeah. is- Just before we get into e-commerce and stuff, um, it's it's super interesting, like the the archaic model. It reminds me of like kind of of the old like Soviet adage, you know, they we pretend to do work, they pretend to pay us, that sort of thing, where it's like we pretend we're getting results and they pretend that they're paying for agency expertise when it's just this sort of merry-go-round. Um, so I'd love to hear like what is that what's what from that old model, like what was the effect uh for the for the consumer, for the viewer, you know, like what 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 sort of art or what kind of like programming would come out of that sort of model in your experience? Well, in, in the old days, the programming was very, um, uh, there, there's a term that we use in the, in the subcontinent, even like if, if you have uh, your, your Indian viewers will also understand this phrase It's basically the word Sas Bahu, which means that um, Sas means mother-in-law and Bahu means daughter-in-law. So drama after drama content in terms of what you see on TV, print, radio, uh, about the uh, negative relationship between a mother-in-law and a, and, and a daughter-in-law, and in the context that the daughter-in-law, as, as she marries this, the, uh, she marries a guy, and uh, we only talk about heterosexual relationships in Pakistan. We everything else is taboo. So uh, uh, the, the story of girl marries guy, she has to move in with his parents, and so the conflict she has with the mother-in-law—that's the only type of storyline that's ever been produced in Pakistan, just because it's safe. It's something that people will definitely gravitate towards. And because they have no choice, they will consume it. That being said, with Netflix, with content piracy, with other types of platforms, YouTube is a prime example of, all, of, of that. People making short videos and those short videos blowing up overnight about very, you know, I, I would say high level con- con- uh, concepts, uh, stories about ex- existentialism, stories about uh, the impact of uh, the aftermath impact of war, uh, stories about uh, the, uh, the, the, I would say the impact of, as you and I obviously know, the impact, the negative impact of social media on, on the mental health of children, especially young girls. When you see these stories explode, then the broadcasters have been, are, are, have been freaking out over the past few, few months because they're like people, there's all this data pointing that people are consuming this other type of content that we've never produced in our lives and we have never intended to produce. And so we have two options. The first option is to get to be, to be better. And the second option is to lobby to the government that you should shut down these apps because of A, B, and C reason. That's primarily the, the tactic of the broadcasters right now. And for every app they shut down, three more apps show up. And so the government has also come to the conclusion that shutting down these apps to, to, to protect the interests of a few archaic businesses that we have in our country doesn't really make sense. Now we need to start working with them. And that was actually, actually the basis of a recent article that I wrote where I basically told the government 
in that article that uh, was an open letter to the, to the media uh, regulator that uh, for every app that you shut down, three apps will come on board, three other apps will come on board, and those apps will come from random organizations with, with the only interest of data harvesting, not from the perspective of platform development and, and you know, user acquisition and creating, creating value for the user, whereas TikToks and all that, or, or whatever people say about them, they do create value for the users and the, and the businesses that they serve. So that's where, that's, that's, that's where the industry is shifting a bit. But if you have a very specific question about this, I'd be happy to answer. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. Thank you for that. So there's all these different apps springing up and, and, you know, the, the market is, is probably going to become more fragmented, you know, hopefully in a, in a good way. Um, I, I guess with that, you know, what's, what's the sort of view and maybe this is getting into bigger kind of foreign policy stuff, but what's, what's the view on China with uh, the, the Pakistani leadership right now? I know in the U S there's been ups and downs with TikTok, uh, So I'd love to hear kind of the, the overall outlook on, you know, various Chinese apps coming in and that sort of thing. Sure. So Pakistan and China have a very strong relationship over the past, I would say four or five decades. Uh, it could be longer. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but over the past, I would say decade, the, 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 the last two uh, government, the last two prime ministers that we've had from different political parties, uh, they've been on very good terms with China from a trade relationship and other relationships. But then also, you know, that China has the Belt and Road Initiative that they're spanning all over all over Asia, and Pakistan plays a key role in that. And, and that initiative within Pakistan is called CPEX. It stands for the letter C P E C. So it stands for China Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, and so because of that gigantic investment coming in from China to Pakistan, essentially China saying, "Here's like 15 billion dollars. I'm going to help you build infrastructure inside your country, so commercial activity and and, and transportation logistics is much more seamless." Uh, as a result of that, the Pakistani government is well aware that if we don't like something about a Chinese app, we can't just ban it because that, that'll have a very big long-term implications on, on the relationship. That being said, um, the national security concerns that uh, the U.S. had with, with TikTok, with, pertaining with the idea that TikTok is uh, controlled by the Chinese government or the, the, uh, the, the, the supposition that uh, TikTok, because it's the, the TikTok being owned by ByteDance and ByteDance being based in China, the servers of the users in China might be compromised by getting access by the, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. And so we don't have those concerns in Pakistan because we have no understanding from a regulatory standpoint and from a, from a general standpoint about data and identity. I mean, to date, if I talk to a digital marketer, someone who calls themselves Google certified in Pakistan, and I talk, talk to them about, about what, what, what is your plan for the third party cookie debris? Uh, depreciation. They don't want to talk about it. They want to, they want to keep the clients in the dark. They don't want anyone to acknowledge that this is a problem. So we're, we're at that level where we, we just, we're just, we're choosing a lot of the industry leaders are choosing to be ignorant about various uh, topics that are, you know, highly talked about in the West and anyone can access that information. It's not like our internet is blocked off. We can't see what's happening on CNN or anything like that, but people are just choose to be ignorant because there's, there's a, there's a reluctance to, to, to go above and beyond and be a bit, bit too sophisticated. And that also just boils down to the fact that people in the country are living and, you know, in three month cycles, they're, they're, they're within their own jobs. They're being evaluated on three month cycles. So no one thinks beyond the next 12 months, 15 months, 24 months within their organization, let alone in their own lives. So expecting them to think about data privacy or thinking about national security and prison, all that, that doesn't even come into play. So as an example, uh, 
you 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 talk about America, the U.S. and China having relationship where you know and it's two ways, right? I mean, the U.S. banned TikTok, but if you flip the flip the other side, uh, China doesn't allow Google and Facebook in its country. So at least the U.S. allowed TikTok in the first place, and then and then they kick them out later. So in in the same way, to a certain extent, on the political political level, Pakistan and India don't get along allegedly, right? Uh, business wise, they're, they're best friends. That being said, there's so many apps that are made in India by owned owned by Indian companies that are flourishing in Pakistan just because the content on those apps or the connectivity or the network effects on those apps is is a value addition for the people at large. But you don't see the Pakistan government or the regulators in Pakistan say that app is owned by an Indian company or you know it's potential that it's possible that the data of our citizens is being harvested by an Indian company and therefore by the Indian government and so we should ban them. You don't see that rhetoric at all. In Pakistan, so we don't really care. It's it's a matter of figuring out that, like, if I speak to the regulator and I speak to them at, at length about this, they will come back to me and say, "Oh, it's because you know we we're all about transparency, we're all about open market, we want everyone to have an op- a, a, a level playing field." But actually, what's happening in the back end is they have no idea how to address this in the first place. So they would expect someone from a McKinsey or a Bain to come in as a subject matter expert and tell them this may be a national security ish- in, in, uh, uh, you know risk. Or this may be something that you should be concerned about. Uh, so yeah, if, if, if just just think of if you think of it just from that perspective, Pakistan and India are supposed to be enemies, and so we don't ban the Chinese the, the Indian apps. What would we do with Chinese apps? We would never ban them because they're investing in our country as well. Right, right, and I think that in, in Pakistan's defense, I'm not sure anybody knows how to really regulate this stuff the right way, and uh, the the sort of you know the incentives of short time frames, the three month time frame, kind of reminds me of that that line. I think it's maybe from Eric Weinstein who said like, you know, we look for our blind spots so that we can do business there. You know, we look for these things that we don't completely understand because we we there there are ways that we can you know, generate, generate profit and that sort of thing. So that, that could be going on, but it sounds like eventually there's, there's too much data and those blind spots uh, don't, you know, lose, lose their effect basically. So, you know, on, on that point, uh, I, I often have to testify in front of the, 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 uh, the ministry of it in Pakistan. I often have to testify testify is a strong word, but basically they called me in as a subject matter expert, to explain various things to them or just ask a bunch of their questions, questions that they, feel that they ask the media in an open press conference, they look like idiots. So they just, in a closed room, no cameras or anything, they'll ask me questions and another and two other matter experts show up. And what I often find in those, uh, those situations is that these people are, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. What I often tell them is that this is an, this is the advantage of being a third world country, or this is an advantage of being a country that is not, let's say, technologically savvy. Some countries may look at us and say, Oh, those people don't even know what a what a I don't know digital asset management system is. They don't even know that. So how are they gonna? They don't know what CMS is. They don't know how to how to do certain things. That being said, we can now look to the West and we can say that because Amazon w- w- originated there and Amazon is now going through all these antitrust issues, when Amazon comes to our country, we know what to expect as opposed to being blinded by that. Yeah. So that's kind of the advantage of being a third world country, and that is what has happened in the last week. Amazon, uh, uh, this is a uh, uh, yeah, ex- about about a week ago, I, w- I guess this was like 10th of May, uh, the uh, Pakistan government announced that Amazon is bringing its e-commerce business to Pakistan and its web services business to Pakistan. And so while everyone in the business community was celebrating this, uh, myself and two other people who are, again, I'm a fan of Amazon. I use Prime Video, 
I, I enjoy their services. That being said, I know about all the antitrust cases that are against them uh, all over the world, not just in the U.S., but also in the EU and other things, predatory pricing and and undercutting various small businesses and driving a lot of businesses out of a lot of companies out of business. Uh, and not, not not just that, but also how everyone knows how they treat their warehouse staff. Uh, but that being on the side, I, I, I was one of the few people, I mean, sorry, I am one of the few people in the country that is countering the government narrative, which is all about the government narrative right now is that we do $25 billion in exports. With Amazon, we're going to do $50 billion in exports. And I'm the only person going out there saying that, first of all, in order to do $50 billion of exports, you need to have a, a very sophisticated logistical infrastructure, which you do not have as an internal internal part of your country. Your internal capabilities do not allow you to get there, let alone using Amazon to get there. And then there's a lot of issues with like ports and customs and other things and bribes and all that. Fix all, I, I, that's, that's all I said to the, the commerce minister. I met him a few days ago. I was like, first fix these things and then call in Amazon, then invite all these foreign companies to come, come, come to your country. Otherwise, what's going to happen is they're going to come in, they're going to face these barriers and they're going to say, you know, screw it. Why, why should why should we waste our time here where there's all these barriers and all this, all this corruption? So that that being said, let's assume that was even fixed. But my primarily point, point, point to them was that we can look at these antitrust cases and we can prepare for what Amazon may or may not, may not do in its go-to market strategies for in year one, year two, planning up to year 15. Uh, and then we, we we're, so we're prepared for it. If, 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 if nothing else, we're prepared for it. So that we have contingencies in place and that way we can put policies in place that could uh, sort of protect our small and medium businesses or provide them with the right funds so that they can pivot early before Amazon comes in. So if I were to speak to some um, small fashion retailer in the U.S. and ask them that if you knew, if if you could take what you know today and take that back 15 years with regards to Amazon and e-commerce marketplaces, what would you have invested your time and energy and resources into so that you're prepared for the future? And obviously, one of those things, Dan, that you and I both know is stop relying on online marketplaces and also invest your energy in an own.com so that you can own that customer data and you can have that CRM to yourself and monetize on that. As opposed to when you deal with an Amazon or an Alibaba and you're you're put, putting all your eggs in that basket, not only are you listing the products with them at a discount sometimes, and then you're giving them a 30% commission on the sales. You're right. also you're also sort of coerced in an in a very polite way to spend advertising money within their platform so that your ads and your product can be seen at the discovery at the top within the in-feed. And then on top of that, to make matters worse, if that company thinks that you're not giving them enough money, they're like, I'll just enter that market and I'll undercut. Them. Right. And then you, you, you and then you're you, um, the worst part about all this is you have no you have no ownership of the data that you've acquired. No matter how many tracking pixels you put on that site, if it says amazon.com slash bobber, I don't own that page. Amazon owns it again. No matter yeah. how much data I've acquired, I, I'm, I'm going to be screwed if they one day decide we don't like you, you're, you're off the platform. Yeah, I'm going to take Amazon what a joke. Right, <laughs> right. And we, we uh, had Rory on for a second time recently, who we both know. And he made that point that Amazon's actually very, very Soviet because there's not a lot of differentiation between the products and you're kind of just picking whatever's whatever they choose to list it in whatever particular way. So it's, it's in a way you can kind of see like throughout history, uh, 
the biggest capitalists on earth, like the Carnegie's of the world. And now maybe the Amazons actually are kind of big fans of socialism and left politics mm-hmm. because it really feeds into their hand better than a chaotic, you know, capitalist system. So it's super interesting. And I want to get more into e-commerce, but to take, take kind of a sidetrack real quick, you said something uh, really compelling about the regulators and, and the idea of, you know, regulators in Pakistan, not understanding like what a CMS is or what any of this technology is. And I think the U S is not, not a lot better. Better, you know, and I think in the U.S. we have a lot of our debates over demographics, over the fact that the boomers have held on, have quote unquote held on to power for so long, and that you know the just you can just look at any political stage in the U.S. and it's mostly older people, not a lot of young blood going into that, and that's that's the problem. According to, to a lot of people, that's the central problem. So my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Pakistan is a younger country demographically than than Western Europe or the U.S. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, how does that that affect the way you see this panning out, the way you see regulation. Assuming I'm right about that, and maybe I'm not, so let me know. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. To, to, to your earlier point about <clears throat> about the U.S. having politicians and people in power who are old, I remember like the, the example that pops up in my mind is when Sundar Pichai was being, uh, you know, was was being grilled by Congress or Senate. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure who, which which group it was. But then someone in the audience asked uh, someone from the from the from the panel asked. Uh, you know, someone held up an iPhone and, and, and they're like, why does your device track me? And, and he had to explain that, hey, man, we don't make iPhones like that one for that for me was the biggest space. Problem. I was like, you could that was that's basic information. man. like the prime minister of Pakistan knows this, that Apple is made. Uh, Apple makes iPhones and not Google. But that, that was that was really hilarious for me. So I, we, we I, I, I experienced that every now and then people don't, don't understand how WhatsApp works. Be, is the same group of people like the people who are regulating the the social media apps in Pakistan don't know the difference between WhatsApp and FaceTime. They they think they're they think they're one and the same. Um, so it's uh, it's a challenge and a half. But to your second part of your question about uh, the youth population, yeah, it's it's something like sixty percent of our country is under the age of I would say thirty, which is, sounds great in theory and it sounds great and and I've I've been I've been I've been a silent voice sort of like hammering on again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't sound impressive to me, to be honest, because this is one of those things where people talk about quantity over quality. There's a lot of this all over the world. And you, 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 you've been, I'm sure experienced in your world where people are talking about impressions, but they're not talking about conversions. Uh, and so when I look, when I look at this number where someone says that, Oh, it's so great that you're pop- 60% of your population is under the age of 30 or 25 or whatever the number is uh, it's, it's definitely under 30. So, I, my my follow up to that is how many of that thirty percent sixty percent is employed, and that too employed with good paying, uh, good and high paying jobs, because if you look at I'm giving an example from the U S. but if you look at the work of Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway from New York Stern, one of the one of the one of the pandemics, uh, qualitative pandemics that he talks about is the pandemic of young white men who are virgins, and because of their their lack of I would say. I don't want to get, get 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 to crude, but generally speaking, if they have they have lack of progress in their social standing, uh, whether that means in, in the form of securing a, a, a made for life, or that means in terms of the, the work that they do, or in terms of the, the fulfillment that they have in their life, they will turn towards extremist and right wing elements, uh, or extreme left wing elements, and become extremists in their own way. Whether that means picking up a weapon to shoot up a school, or that means doing other kinds of violent and, and absolutely horrendous acts. And so we have that bit in Pakistan where you have this gigantic 
you know, a pool of people, this 200 million uh, people country, risk 60% is under a certain age. That's 120 million people. I'm not, I, I, I would honestly guess that 75% of that population is unemployed or miserable in one way or the other. And yeah. so the, the people, people will automatically revert to a victim mentality. And then they go into a state of, I need someone to blame because I've been taught my whole life that I'm exceptional. And so I need someone to blame for the state of my life is right now. So from a, from an app business perspective, when I speak to these Chinese companies coming into the country and I ask them, why Pakistan? And I say it with extreme skepticism. I don't say, thanks for coming in. Why Pakistan? I don't go, I, I, I'm the exact opposite. And so they cite this number. They're like, oh, you know, if you have 120 million people in, in your country, 80 million of whom have a smartphone. That's a great market for us to capture right now. And then in the next 15 years, hopefully they'll be worth something. That, so that sounds great and everything, but the ARPU today, the average revenue per user today is hardly a, hardly a dollar. Uh, so the, by the time you get a return on investment, or I would say by the time you get break even, it, within a certain segment, within that large segment, would be like 10, 15 years, as opposed to going after niche audiences, which is what our publication does. So um, as, as probably mentioned in the introduction, uh, I work for a publication that uh, that covers a, a lot of topics. And I would say we're the, basically the Wall Street Journal of Pakistan. We have an affiliation deal with, with the Wall Street Journal where we represent them and vice versa. And so I'm their advertising reporter and every single reporter works for a very niche industry. So we have a niche audience and the and we have a small audience. So I would say we have about 300 uh, of, of the of the 200 million people in the whole country uh, on a on a on a sorry on a monthly basis. About a million of them read our publication, but those million are the people who run the Pakistan equivalent of Wall Street. So it doesn't sound impressive to have only a million out of 200 million, but those those million people control, I would say, 150 billion dollars worth of inventory on on an annual basis. So someone coming up to me and saying, I've got 100 million subscribers or 100 million viewers or 100 million likes on Facebook. My only question to them is the ARPU that they're getting for per user. And that's usually in the cents, as opposed to in our side, it's in the $1,000 to $5,000 range. So it sounds impressive, but at the end of the day, you have to ask the real questions. And I'm sure you do that as well in your practice, where if someone says to you, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to draw a, a million website visitors to my site. And you're like, yeah, I could do that for like 0 0.001 CPM. And from Indonesia, like a target audience that's not, not in of your concern, but hardly of them, any of them will con convert. Your bounce rate's going to be through the roof. Your site's probably going to get flagged by Google's schema for being potentially driving home bots. Uh, so it, it right. sounds good on paper to have a million people visit your site, but if those are not qualified audiences, then what's the point? And so I look at it the same way where, yes, you have under 60% uh, under a certain age group, but then what is the quality of their life? And then you can make it determine whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Right, right. And there's there's a lot to get into there. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be said for for niches and most uh I've observed that with our business and all over the place. I think that there's there's a lot of power in that, um, and a lot of fewer shared experience and that sort of thing. And those things are tied together. And to to go back to the demographic thing a little bit, um, and I think that's been pretty well diagnosed in the US at this point that you know you have this massive uh, group of kind of like disillusioned is primarily young men, then they're going to go towards extremism, whether that's an Antifa or an alt-right or just languishing in a basement playing video games or something like that. So not to get to get hung up on that too much, but I'm just curious, like, how do you see that playing out in Pakistan? Is it Islamic extremism? Is it something else? Like, how is that? What are, what are people in that, in those positions kind of grasping towards? Sure. 
Uh, it used to be Islamic extremism, but then the, then the army really stepped up a few years ago and they basically went up and uh, they purged all these people. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. They went to certain areas where they knew the worst people were and they just purged them out of existence. Didn't capture them anything. They said, we have to end their lives because if we put them in jail, they'll be martyrs and then they'll have symp- sympathizers and that'll just make things worse. So we had to put an end to their existence. Uh, so they, 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 that was done about a decade ago. And since then, things have been pretty, I would say, uh, I mean, I, I look at the crime statistics in the U.S. and New York and other places as well. So I would say we're, you know, quite, quite, quite reasonable in terms of the, uh, the crime numbers and the statistics on that, that front. Things are good from that perspective. If people are driven towards an extremist narrative, the narratives are usually on the, on the, on the premise of we need to overthrow the government in order to be, you know, I would, I would say, be our own country, as opposed to right now, Pakistan relies a lot on foreign donations, uh, loans from the IMF, uh, investments from companies like China, sorry, 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 countries like China, uh, primarily with Belt and Road, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, other, other, other influences. So a lot of external foreign direct investment with a lot of uh, catch-22s attached to it that, that is governing Pakistan right now. And obviously that impacts how well or how little we progress as a country. So it's one of those things where uh, people who, I'll put it this way, uh, today, if, 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 if today, if you and I map out all the goals of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, and we go to Bill and we, you know, we put on our Thanos glove and we say we snap our finger and and all the problems get solved in the world. Do you do you, th- do you think Bill will take us up on that offer? And and Bill Bill's an extreme example, but any philanthropist or any NGO in the world will say no to that offer because their whole business relies on getting those donations. And if for every hundred dollars that you donate to an NGO, eighty nine dollars goes to the NGO itself, eleven dollars goes to the cause itself. Every single Audit in the world has confirmed this. $11 out of the $100 that you spend on an NGO goes to the actual um, cause that you actually wanted to spend. 89 goes into administrative fees, marketing fees, and other fees that go within the, within the NGO itself. So it's, it's in their vested interest for the problems to continue. In the same vein, Pakistan is a strategic task, asset to various types of com- countries all over the world. Uh, so China, Russia, and big parts of the Middle East is, is, is predominantly a part of this. And so from a geopolitical standpoint, there's a lot of countries that are in pouring money into Pakistan that have a lot to gain with things remaining the same. And so there's a, the, the political swell that, that, you, that you were referring, that you were alluding to earlier. Right now, it's, there's one group that says we need foreign direct investors coming into the country so that we can survive and thrive and, and possibly innovate in the, in the future. And the other group of people who have, let's say, perhaps spent time in the government, who have seen how many roadblocks are created or how many golden handcuffs are created as a result of taking this money? Uh, and there's a lot of cash 22s attached to it. They're saying we need to be, we need to be independent from this group of people. And that's the that's the latter group of people who are who, who's not really gotten any self actualization from the corporate careers that they pursue or any kind of jobs that they have. And so this gigantic student movement uh, towards uh, towards freeing the country again, quote unquote, freeing the country from the shackles of foreign direct investors, especially the ones that come with the cash 22. Because it's one thing to invest in the country and say, I like to build up the real estate industry. It's another thing to invest and say that uh, I'm investing so that you don't create the microchips that go into a smart car. 
Right. Right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and with that, you know, I think uh, there, it sounds like obviously there's lots of powers uh, involved and things remaining the same and journalism is all about things, shaking things up and creating transparency. So, so things can get better, at least ideally. So with that, um, what's it like being a journalist in Pakistan is, you know, how, how easy or hard is it for you to do what you do? How safe do you feel? <laughs> and so on. Sure. Uh, there's about uh, about three thousand publications in the entire country, uh, and and uh, through brute force, all these publications had to go digital. It wasn't like they they thought, you know, I think digital is going to take off. Let's invest our time in owning there. They're like, nope, that's not exactly what happened. People started reading the news on Facebook and Google, and then the publications were like, we got to create a .dot com or we're going to lose readership re- readers. And so that that's the that's the landscape right now. Three thousand, uh, I would say, uh, com- uh, publications. And when I say publications, I also mean broadcasters. So you'll see a lot of um, the, the, the way CNN is, as an example. So if, if there's an organization such as CNN in Pakistan, they'll have they'll have content that you can watch on TV, on an OTT device, uh, on your smartphone. Obviously, uh, they'll have a website where you can read the content, and they'll also have a newspaper, a physical print, you know, paper newspaper, and they'll have a radio station as well. And that's generally the the, the, the schema that's applied across the whole country. And slowly, we're, we're, we're hopefully getting at the end of the year uh, direct to home devices. And I often joke to the people in Pakistan that we're going to get those devices on the uh, 31st of June, <clears throat> which is another way of saying it's never going to happen. So um, that's that's where the market is right now. Um, your, your question was where is it, where it's headed. If I'm not that too, but also just what it's like to do, to do what you do, you know, in terms of, it sounds like there's lots of powerful forces that want, like you said, want everything to be the same. And I'm wondering what, what, what the, the, the process of journalism is like for you. Uh, yeah. I, I know in other places, you know, in other developing countries, it's not always safe being a journalist. So I love to hear what, what your experience is like. Sure. Well, the thing is, the thing, the thing about me is that I actually come from the advertising industry. I spent about um, 70 years in client servicing within advertising agencies. So dealing with, dealing with all types of clients from government, all the way, uh, government, military, and, um, and, and obviously for-profit organizations. So having, having experienced that and then jumping into journalism, I kind of went reverse in my career and a lot of things. But uh, jumping from there into journalism wasn't that hard as, as a jump. Uh, because of my first my first job was my first journalistic journalistic job was with, uh, with with the Haymarket Media Group in Singapore for a publication called Campaign Asia, which is under Campaign, so the U.S. that Campaign U.S. or PR Week and other others. And then from there, I went to a, an American publication called Branding in Asia. I was with them for two years, and then COVID happened, so a lot of things got affected because of that. And since then, I've been with uh, this publication called Profit. And so, and across these four years that I've been with these three different publications across three different countries. I've been covering the advertising industry or in, in the Asia Pacific region, but then also with Pakistan. And over the past one year, I primarily focused all my attention on Pakistan. And so in that way, uh, of the of the 400,000 people in Pakistan who can consider themselves journalists, whether they're citizen journalists or, or fully employed journalists, there's only three in the whole country that cover the advertising industry. And so this is a question I often bring up with people where I tell them that, if you pick up the beats of various reporters across the entire industry, the first largest beat is is political. The second largest beat is entertainment, which is everything to do with your shows and your your all types of programming and shows. The third largest is fashion lifestyle, so covering you know what 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 fashion has been 
what fashion products have been rolled out and how they look and how they wear and all those other things as, as attached to that. Again, I'm very ignorant about it, so I'm not going to go too much into detail about what goes into fashion journalism. Uh, and then so on and so forth. And the economy is somewhere on the eighth place. Uh, and then way down, I guess, on the on, on, on 800 places, advertising journalism. Or And then I put a point, point this out to people quite a bit where um, I tell them that, you know, we have we have a reporter for the smartphone industry. We have a reporter for the pharmaceutical industry. We have a reporter for the FMCG industry. We don't have a single reporter, I mean, aside from myself and two others, for the advertising industry. And why is that? Because our business models as broadcasters and publishers relies on the media agencies in the, in the country. And all the deals in, in Pakistan are, all the advertising deals at least, in Pakistan are done through the media agencies. So if I own a publication called Bobber.com, the only way I'm going to get money in terms of quickly, in terms of go to market with least amount of least amount of friction, least amount of barriers to uh, getting my cash flows in check. Let, I mean, PNL one thing, but getting my cash flows in check, the best relationship I can do right now is uh, build a relationship with the media agency. The media agency will come to me, or I will go to them, and I'll say to them that my rate card says a thousand dollars per you know per impression. I'm giving a very bad example. No one in the world I, don't th- I think has a dollar a thousand dollar CPM. But let's say it's a thousand dollar CPM. I'll tell the media agency you will keep 45% of this for me, you know, so and so slab of business that you bring in. And that's how the business works in Pakistan. So imagine being a publisher writing about media agencies, good or bad. That's a big red flag. Even right now in my current role and all the roles I've had within the journalistic space, it's happened many times where I've written an article about, let's say I've written the article about Google. It's not happened yet, but let's say I've written the article about Google. Google's media agency will get in touch with me and say, or get in touch with my editor and say that, you have to delete this article. You have to edit this article. You have to amend this article. You have to change something because my client is unhappy, right? That's that's the media agency calling me because their client is unhappy with the article that I wrote about them or maybe the industry or whatever uh, regulatory landscape stories. Now imagine the media agency calling me to say that we're upset because you upset us. Yeah. That's a whole other, you know, the strain of that conversation. Because even in the first part, of the first example, media agency is saying, yeah, I know this call sucks. I know it's really annoying. But, you know, my client wants me to relay this information, A, B, and C. But the second right. scenario is like, hey, man, what the hell? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. So yeah, because, of yeah. that, because of that reality, very few uh, very few publications in Pakistan can do advertising journalism. As a result of that, when you have, again, like, like I mentioned, there's only three of us. One of, one of, one of the publications is called Aurora. Uh, the, public, the URL is aurora.com. Uh, sorry, aurora.dawn.com. Uh, dawn as in the rising, rising dawn. The second one is called Synergizer. Uh, I, I don't know how to, how, I think it's a made up word. I'm not, I'm not yeah. mistaken, but uh, synergizer.com. And then the third is us, which is a convoluted profit. profit.paxantoday.com.pk. Yeah. We'll so, get the last one linked up. Um, but, and, and I guess, you know, in the U S it's uh, and elsewhere there were, for years, it was kind of the advertiser model, like kind of like the one that, that you described. And then more recently it shifted especially for like New York times and others, Bloomberg's to uh, a reader funded model. And I always thought that that, that would be better, you know, cause the people that are getting the news are paying for it. There's less bad, fewer bad incentives with advertisers. But I think what we've gotten and the criticism that this model's created is that 
now there's kind of this incentive to create these echo chambers, you know, that are perpetuated by social networks where you're, you're essentially like incentivized just to create articles that people that make people happy or that feed into a particular point of view. So for the New York times, it's going to be, you know, center left for wall street journal center, right. And, and so on from there. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, is there, is there a model that you think is, is more ideals or a right way to do this? <laughs> is it always just going to be a mess? I have to admit, Dan, I have never to this day, up to, you, up to the point that you just said this, heard the counter argument against subscriptions mm-hmm. because our publication is driving, you know, pushing for subscriptions at a massive scale uh, and succeeding to a certain extent. I would say about 30% of our revenue is from recurring subscriptions that are coming in, both corporate and individual. So that's a, that's a positive on our side. And that's a big part of why we're able to do this sort of risky journalism with advertising and media industries. Um, that being said, uh, I mean, I, I've never heard it in, in, before about the upper echo chambers, but I can see what you're what you're referring to. Um, uh, the, for the most part, businesses in Pakistan want want to rely on the advertising advertising oriented uh, revenue model, just because not only is it ste- is it a steady st- is, uh, you know source of income, but also on top of that, most of the organizations right now are relying on advertisers because. The advertiser is also funding the content in a lot of a lot of cases. So it's one thing to have your ad, uh, your your client's ad, and giving an example. Let's say there's a Dell laptop ad inside your your uh, your publication or your TV or whatever. Now it's a whole other story where Dell is coming to you and saying that I will create a program, a piece of content, and you can air that content on your on your on your on your you know your your TV show, your YouTube channel, whatever uh, whatever the medium is, and you can say it's by you. But you know, it's it's my product deep, deeply integrated in there. Dell ha- laptops just happen to be used and all that. So there, there's a couple of scenarios of that, that that type. But what was your exact question? If I'm just trying to no, understand, no, I, I think you, I think you kind of answered it. Where it's uh, the the subscription model is sounds like you know the the way to get rid of that problem. And I think it kind of ties back to what you what we started to talk about with niches and the fact that you know, your niche is, is investigating or, or, or dealing with uh, the advertising industry and that sort of thing. So that just might be where it's, where it's heading. Uh, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because then from that point, I would say that in Pakistan, there's a lot of, again, it's, it's, uh, it, I was recently having a similar conversation with someone. And when I, I, I took like, a, I took like two minutes to reflect on my answer, um, which is a horrible thing to do on a live panel. But um I, I essentially just came back to them and I said that I think it's a difference between, again, this is a hunch. I think it's a difference between if you're dealing with a digital native or a digital immigrant. A digital immigrant, when you're telling them these things, will say that, you know, the way I've been doing things is the way it's always been working. And so I'm, I have no invested interest to change anything or invest in the future or, 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 or mend my ways. And on top of that, they'll also say that if I, again, if I go with the media agency, if I go for the advertising model, I have to go to like five media agencies to get like a billion dollars worth of revenue. If I flip it over to the subscription side, now I have to hit a million touch points. Yeah. I'm assuming my subscription rate is a thousand dollars a year, which is still absurdly high, right? Right. So it's, this, they, they feel like it's a lot of effort to do the million, the million touch points versus the five touch points. That being said, what they don't realize is that the million touch points, through the million touch points, your cash flows will probably be a lot better than the, from the media agency touch point because, again, payment cycles in Pakistan are pretty bad. Something that's promised in 30 days comes in 45 days. So, and that that can impact not only your own OPEX, but it can impact how quickly or how efficiently you can disperse salaries to your employees as, as a very tiny micro example. 
Yeah, and I think the other the other point is that it's just fewer cooks in the kitchen. I mean, if you if you have if you're going off the advertising model, you've got to make both advertisers and readers happy versus just making readers happy, <laughs> get them to keep paying you. So there's something really simple about that. Um, and to tie this back to, to yeah. if I could add on one more point, yeah, when you deal with the advertiser model, the way the, the way it works in Pakistan right now is deals are made and enforced about twelve to fifteen months consecutively. So if I if I bring on a media agency today or, or a media agency that I deal with right now in the month of uh, uh, man I'm, I'm blanking right now but in the month of May if I bring in a media agency and I tell them that from the first of June 2021 till the you know 31st of May 2022 um, this this is the deal that we have every single this is the revenue that you're going to generate that's going to be locked in and even even if the client advertiser cancels at any point in time I will be able to retain at least 30 percent of that agreed about agreed amount because we understand there's an opportunity cost with me making the agreement in the first place, right? Because of media slots and, and limited media inventory. The same cannot be said on the subscription side. Is that today the subscriber says that I don't want to continue my, my subscription. Let's say they've paid for a year, $1,000. And after eight months, they're like, yeah, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this beyond the ninth month, right? That person's $750 will be credited, uh, so, so will, will be debited, but $250 will go back to the, to, to the, to the customer uh, for, for the remaining three months. And so if, if I'm not mistaken with the math, but, uh, so you, you, you have that sort of cashback approach with, with the, with, with the subscriber side, but you don't have that on the, uh, on the advertiser side. So there's a lot of valid reasons I would say why broadcasters don't want to change things the way they are. That being said, when they look at publications like ours and they look at the ARPU at the end of the day, it does boil down to this, right? How, how much money are you making per audience member per eyeball that you've been able to attract? Um, when I say eyeball, obviously, I mean two, a pair of eyes. Uh, so it's, it's about how many eyeballs that you've been attracted and how much money you're making against those. If, you're, if, if that is declining, if your user base is increasing and your average revenue per user is declining, there's a red flag to be raised, but people are not raising that red flag right now. But what's happening is with these apps that are coming into the market that are able to, like, for example, every single year, uh, one of the big apps in Pakistan releases a report that, that implies, without saying it very clearly, but implies how much money they're making in Pakistan. So then they're in, they're, the broadcasters are like, this company's making $100 million a year from five employees. We're making $10 million a year from 1,000 employees. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Yeah. And, and on top of it, in the end, we've been in the market for 50 years, and these people just came in like three years ago. So we should be ashamed of ourselves. So that, that is definitely happening. It's, it's one of those things where, Dan, um, when COVID happened in Pakistan, uh, I, I said something very politically incorrect, but it turns out I was right. Like we're now we're 18 months or 15 months later after COVID. And I said this at the time when I was when I was speaking to one of the leaders of the government that people will people in Pakistan will not take social distancing and bring a mask and all these other things. They will not take it seriously until someone in their family dies from COVID. That that's the reality. People in Pakistan do not take anything seriously until they've been shot in the kneecaps. No, no one takes and this this has been mirrored in other parts of the world as well. In Pakistan, people didn't believe COVID was real. They're like, it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to keep our masks on. And I'm like, you are an extremist psychopath who wants women to wear a veil all the time. And someone has come and said that everyone's going to wear a veil all the time. And you're still against it. So uh, I, I, I'm like, this is a win-win for you guys. You're, you're nuts, but this is a win-win for you. But they're like, no, <laughs> this is a conspiracy against us. And people want to, Bill Gates want to take, Bill Gates is going to take a chip, put that in the vaccine and then inject it into us. He's going to track us everywhere. And I'm like, you idiot. You paid a hundred dollars for a smartphone that's doing that already. You paid for that. So yeah, 
There's not the time and money to track you constantly. You're useless in the grand scheme of things. So that that's what it is in Pakistan. People are slowly, as people are losing business, I would say 8% a year. When I speak to broadcasters, the large broadcasters in Pakistan, across the board, the average number that I've gotten out of them is that on an annual basis, they're from a, if you keep if you keep the foreign exchange constant uh, and if you keep year on year growth constant, uh, they're losing eight percent of revenue on a year 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 by year basis, and they attribute to the fact that they didn't innovate in time when they could have, when they should have, and when they could have. And that being said, even as they realize this today, they're reluctant to do it because they're hoping things will go back to the way they were. Right. So these people deserve to be wiped out from from the industry ecosystem, and rightfully so because they're they're losing relevance. They they they're unable to prove their audiences are real. They're unable, unable to prove their value to the advertiser in general, they can they can say branding and top of funnel all they want. But if you're if you're watching a 60 minute show and you know 40 minutes of it is the show itself and 20 minutes is the ads and each ad is 30 seconds, you're watching 40 ads. How, which, how are you going to retain the first ad? How? That's impossible. Yeah. Right? But on digital with retargeting and micro targeting and frequency capping and other aspects of how our targeting is done, you can do that much more efficiently and you can not you, you can you go out of your way not to annoy the person. So like. If I see the same damn ad from TikTok one more time, I mean, I've I, I reached out to the person who, who handles, who leads TikTok in Pakistan. I'm like, I'll pay you. I'll pay you money so I don't ever see this stupid TikTok ad on YouTube again because they don't have a frequency cap. But you can do those things on digital, right? You can't necessarily do those on analog. Uh, and so you can see advertisers shipping in that direction as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And, and I think like going back, going back to the niche stuff, um, and this is something that the Cal Newport, if you know him, has talked a lot about recently in the U S and, um, and it seems like there was an era, you know, X years ago when it seemed like the Facebooks of the world and these various social apps were just, uh, you know, just super strong and impossible to dislodge and everything. And it seems like that's kind of changing now where, you know, you have, more and more niche apps bringing up, you have less uh, less that these apps can do, especially with the Apple, you know, Facebook standoff and all this sort of thing. And and I think Cal's take on it was that there could be a world coming up pretty soon where there's just a bunch of, where you just kind of sign on to your own niche app with, you know, a cohort of people kind of like you and get what you need out of it. Um, so, and it's one of these things where, I think he's also made the point where like, you know, the, the biggest industries that we've seen in the 20th century, like the U.S. steels, the standard oils and that's those sort of things. If you turn them off overnight, the world would be turned upside down. But you turn off Facebook overnight, things aren't going to change that much. You know, maybe uh, Amazon and Google a little bit different. Um, there's there's more utility. There's more kind of like day to day utility to those things. So I'd love to love to hear your your take on that and kind of like where you think things are going. That's exactly what happened a few days ago. There was, uh, no, sorry, a few days ago. I would say a few weeks ago, there was some protests in Pakistan. And as a, in, from, from, a, from a good place, uh, from, an, from intentionally a good place, but ex, you know, good intentions, bad execution. So from a good intentions perspective, the media regulator in Pakistan, the telecom regulator in Pakistan, cut, uh, shut down a bunch of apps. Um, and and it, it, was, it was a blanket. It was blanket. So it was like, we want to shut down Instagram, so we also shut down Facebook. And we want to shut down YouTube, so we also shut down all Google services. So every Google service was was uh, blocked, blocked for, I would say, like four or five hours. So from a utility standpoint, that's exactly what happened, where people who rely on Google apps or apps that rely on Google Maps, for example, right? Uh, some, there are some navigation apps in the country that are replicas of Uber uh, that rely entirely on Google Maps, telling them where the traffic is, where it isn't. 
and so as a result of that, your route is decided according to that as well. So from that perspective, people are like, man, my commute got affected because of this, because I lost access to these apps. My commute became more expensive or I wasted more time in traffic or other things really, really badly impacted that. And on top of that, for example, this was around, I would, I think this was just before Ramadan or in the middle of Ramadan. I think it was in the middle of Ramadan. So there's some people, let's say, who were uh, learning the Quran again or learning a certain prayer again. And so they needed that YouTube app to be open so they could hear it on their drive home. So that helps the recitation or the memorization in, in some ways. And so that got affected. But no one talked about Facebook in the same way. People were like, I lost I lost touch with my friends for a few few hours. No, no big deal. But these utility utility apps that allow me to learn, uh, absorb new information or at least pass the time. Um like, for example, uh, uh, Candy Crush is big in Pakistan. People use it on their commutes. You can see people in the train or in the bus. Uh, sorry, we don't have trains. But people, you can see people in, in, the, in the buses or in, in taxis playing Candy Crush as a way to pass time for 30 minutes uh, commute. You don't, if, you, if, you, if people lose that, they get agitated. <laughs> yeah. and on top of the fact that they're fasting, so it makes it even worse. So, we, um, yeah, we definitely have a very good relationship in terms of utility with Google. Uh, because of Google Maps and YouTube and uh, other similar apps, Gmail obviously pretty pretty big. I mean, for me, for example, Gmail and Google Search. If, I, if oh yeah, and then so Gmail within that Google Docs and Google Sheets and all uh, within the within the uh, Google Suite, and then obviously YouTube and all these uh, and Search as well. That these are essential for my job as a journalist. And any any person in any kind of white collar rule in Pakistan uh, uses these apps. A lot of the business a lot of the business email accounts in Pakistan are ba- are built on Google. So people are signing into Gmail and they're signing in with their business accounts. And we have the same, we have the same setup. A lot of people have the same, like very few people have outlook from that perspective, right? Yeah. And so when the, when the, when that's when those services were shut down for three, four hours, a lot of people weren't able to access their emails. And so the work even stopped. So people just were told, yeah. like, imagine, imagine you run a you run an organization in Pakistan that's a thousand employees for white collar, and you're used to sending out mass emails to them, you know, sending an email at all at, at saleschema.com that, and that email goes to every single employee of the thousand employees. Now a thousand employees in four different cities uh, have been shut down. You're going to, you have to pick up the phone physically yeah. and say, Hey, because the email isn't working, let's just go home. Yeah. You never, you haven't picked up that phone in years. So right. in that way, people started like, so it, it, I mean, it was, in a way it was like a way of reinforcing the people that these apps are a part of our daily life and we should be, you know, we should be grateful for the, to them. Yeah. Um, And it's, uh, yeah, exactly. And I I think the point's been made with, with the alternatives, with, with the social apps that are, are, you know, less important is that like Facebook kind of cut off their own legs because they're, they're the, the way that they could defend themselves was the network effect and the fact that all your friends were on it, but then they got the newsfeed, which isn't necessarily about your friends. It's just about whatever the algorithm says you like. And now it's like, well, what's the point? You might as well go to the, the, whatever niche app it best, fits your needs, you know, which is in the hints you have TikTok and a million others and so on. So, yeah. At that point, one of the things that I, I, I missed out and it just occurred to me right now is that the one utility app that WhatsApp does you, uh, sorry, that Google, that Facebook does own is called WhatsApp. Uh, and uh, I don't know how popular it is in the US, but in Pakistan, it's pretty popular. Yeah. It's like pre-installed, it's pre-installed in most phones. And so from that perspective, even WhatsApp, when WhatsApp went down, that affected a lot of people as well. Yeah. Uh, again, so, so within the within the app, Facebook suite of apps, WhatsApp was the only one that really affected people. People didn't give a shit about losing Instagram and Facebook. But within Google, people lost when people lost access to Gmail, Google Maps, YouTube, uh, for Google Photos. Like you've uploaded your photos onto onto a cloud with Google Photos, 
uh, and, and not necessarily, you know, store them on your phone. That affected people quite a bit. I know a couple of, uh, couple of production businesses in Pakistan that were in the middle, again, because this, this, this block that I'm referring to happened like, uh, within minutes, like there was no, like there was no heads up. So a, a production company that has just finished a TVC shoot, finished the edit of it, uploading the file onto Google Drive that is shared by the whole organization so that the, so that someone else can download it and edit it. And so it's, it's ready for a TVC. That whole production cycle got delayed by two to three days because of this. Uh, yeah. So in that way, people kind of looked at each other like, is there no other option? Then, then obviously now, now, now conversations have happened about how Zoom can be used for this or WeTransfer and other tools can be used as alternatives. So people have like that kind of information has been way more popular. But on the whole, these are considered to be utilitarian in one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, big big wrenches get thrown in the gears when those things go down. So, uh, Var, I think we could probably go on for another three hours about, about all sorts of things. But I want to want to be respectful of your time and everything, and hopefully we'll get you back on. Um, I guess just to kind of finish things up, I'd love to hear what what are you working on that you can talk about? What's going on in the next couple of weeks? What's on the what, what's what's on your beat? Yeah, sure. Um, what's on the beat right now is that, like I've mentioned before, we don't have a, we don't have in a, an active or a proactive regulator per se around the advertising agencies in Pakistan. And advertisers in Pakistan have become very used to the idea that Facebook is Facebook and Google are both the media that they spend their money on and the measurement service that tells them whether the media worked or not. So they've got used to that sort of wall garden approach. And as a result of that, we have a lot of advertising agencies in Pakistan that are going into a lot of what could be considered a conflict of interest space. So you, I, I, there's a couple of advertising agencies in Pakistan that are very largely established that are, you know, importing the, the set-top boxes for direct-to-home, putting programming into that, putting original content into that. So they, they become a sort of Netflix provider and they're, they're pushing for CTV, they're pushing for direct-to-home, they're pushing for the democratization of uh, TV-based advertising, primarily through CTV in the country. And if you try to do this in any other Western market, people would say conflict of interest because you are the media agency, but you're also the media owner and you're also the media distributor. Uh, because, because we don't have that in Pakistan, uh, all these, a couple, a couple of the media agencies in Pakistan are doing this. But one of the biggest media agencies in Pakistan right now that I would recommend if anyone from the, if anyone from any of the markets that, that are your listeners and, and your viewers, that if they're interested in entering the Pakistan market, they should definitely check out a company called Z2C Limited. The website is z2zlimited.com, the, the letter Z to C, so uh, zoo to, to, to cat, <laughs> limit, limited.com. And uh, this is a technology first company that is, that is the, um, the, the, is the second, it, it represents the second largest media agency in Pakistan, right after Group M. So like they, this is the company that gives Group M a hard time in Pakistan. So that tells you a lot about how powerful they are. They're primarily a tech company. They own an app, they, they own, sorry, a service that is the, that is a universal payment gateway. And as a result of that, you can, you can, you can clearly understand the kind of data that they have on hand in terms of actionable commercial data tied to consumer purchases. So you understand how strong they're on that suite. They have access to five agencies in Pakistan that control uh, 80% of the telecom market and a lot of the other markets as well. So the four of the five telecom operators in Pakistan, four of them are their clients. So they're very strong on that front as well. They have the affiliate partnership with Publicis Group, uh, three agencies of Publicis Group, uh, namely Spark, MediaVest, and Starcom. They have a relationship with them as well. And so they have, they have access to a large variety of industry verticals from technology to marketing to e-commerce uh, and even now fintech. And they are a key player in the market from a go-to-market perspective. So what I've seen over the past, I would say, six months is that any gigantic tech company entering into the market 
if they want to speed up their go-to-market approach in terms of not only getting product adoption, but also getting uh, uh, product adoption, but also getting the least amount of friction in terms of the regulatory or the corporate landscape, they go to Z to C. Because again, there's no regulator. If this is a large organization, they move very fast. Their leader is extremely agile minded person. His name is Rehan Merchant. And so if you want to move very, very quickly, you get in touch with this organization and you tell them that, I, I, hey, I, I sell this software, I sell this hardware, I sell this particular piece of you know, uh, a variable that is part of the marketing or advertising ecosystem. And here's, how, here's, a, here's a deal structure that works for me from a reseller perspective. Can you help us? And they'll handle everything from you for that. And they, and they operate from a, the reason, again, there's a big reason that Chinese companies love them is because they operate on a, a um, what's it called? It's called... Slice. Um, basically, uh, they 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 operate on a, on an out, out, output model, so they won't take money from you until they've achieved your goals. So there's no re- there's no retainer fee, there's no commission or anything like that. It's just if I uh, sorry, it's called outcome. So uh, outcome model basically means that if you have a go- end goal in mind, we will only take money from you once we've achieved that end goal. We will not take money from you from the beginning to the end. We'll have lots of conversations. We'll do segmentation strategy, design, creative, media development. Deployment. We'll do all those things on our own dime. But when you get that sales results at the end of the day, when you hit that hundred million dollar mark, we have agreed upon that we will get forty five percent, fifteen percent, whatever the number is of that. And that is what we've, you know, that, that that is the outcome model that we want to approach. So a lot of the Chinese companies really love that about them. But they're saying that we can enter a market, you know, in 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 spirit for a year, and at the end of the year, when whatever revenue that we generate. What we, what, we, what we would have initially paid the media agents anyway, we're paying them at the end of the year as opposed to paying them every single month and hoping for a result at the end of the year. So in that way, they're a really strong contender in the market. So if you're definitely entering the Pakistan market, this is the one company I recommend, not, not just for the reasons I just mentioned right now, but also because of how fast they are. The agility is a sub, I mean, there's no, there's no agency in Pakistan that come close. And the funny yeah. thing is they're led by a digital immigrant, but they, the way it's run, you think it's all run by different natives. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting, and uh, you heard it here. If you're if you're trying to get into Pakistan, CDC Limited, and hopefully learn some Urdu at some point as well, that, that probably helps. So. Uh, the yeah. whole Pakistan market, uh, the whole white collar industry in Pakistan speaks in, speaks English. Yeah, English. You know, we're, we're colonized, obviously, everyone speaks English. Right. Uh, look at, uh, I mean, all all the communications within the organization are English. You need to be able to speak English to work at these companies. Urdu is spoken from the perspective of possibly communicating from a market research standpoint. But yeah. otherwise, everyone speaking English constantly. Proposals are in English. Emails are in English. Everything's in English. Everything you can think of is in English. Uh, I can I can think of very few things that are happening in the, in the native tongue. Yeah, that's that's interesting as well. So, um, Bar, how can people follow what you're up to and get in touch and all that good stuff? LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. Uh, I have a very unique name, so it's not going to be hard to find me. Mm-hmm. And it's a very nice pink image that I use pretty much everywhere. So my full name is Babur Khan Javed. That's uh, it's hopefully in the title. It's also yeah. in the description. Uh, just just search that and, and and look in my LinkedIn. That's the best way to reach me. And then obviously drop, drop me an email at barberkj at gmail.com. That's my personal email address. Uh, and you can reach me there. Uh, I've, I have corporate email addresses as well, but uh, because of the massive amount of emails I get there, it's very hard to go through and sift through, find the right one. Yeah. Uh, and you know press releases and, uh, and pitches and all those other things. So reaching me on my personal address is much better. So these are the two best ways to reach me, LinkedIn and uh, LinkedIn to follow me and my work and, and my Gmail in order to reach me and, and hopefully collaborate in one way or the other. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. And let's see it again. Lovely. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye.
Thanks again for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. We are a fractional new business team for growth-focused boutique agencies and related marketing service companies. But even if you're not at the point of hiring us yet, I still really want to do you solid by giving you access for free, by the way, to our latest recorded video training. And that is titled Relationship Driven New Business at Scale, emphasis on at scale. And basically, this is how we secure around five to 20 weekly brand agency relationships for each one of our clients using tasteful email outreach centered on personal and or business commonalities that our clients share with the people they're reaching out to. So a few things that we cover, we cover the two big shifts that have informed this big strategy shift uh, and why we think you should rethink the way that you are doing new business, most likely at your agency. Uh, we talk about dozens of specific commonalities that we use to build relationships between our clients and brand side decision makers. We go over a simple, manageable follow-up process that you or your team can use, even if you're busy, even if you're in a mixed sales client service role. And we actually go over specific copy examples that you can use to get inspired and build your own campaigns. So if you'd like to get access to this roughly 30-minute video training, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash relationships. Again, that's saleschema.com slash relationships, plural. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode of the Digital Agency Growth Podcast.